0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: This is NPR's Life Kit. I'm Ruth Tam. When you think about the five-day work week, you might think of it as a given. You wake up, you go to work, you wake up, you go to work, and come Friday you sign off or clock out until you start it all over again on Monday morning.
2: I mean, often we think of the weekend as, as a kind of natural thing. We think of the 40-hour week as a kind of, you know, almost yeah, an immovable, natural fact.
1: That's Will Strong, the director of research at the UK-based think tank, Autonomy, which focuses on the future of work. He's also the co-author of Overtime, Why We Need a Shorter Working Week. How much we work may seem like some preordained social ritual, but the five-day work week is an invention. At one point in time, it was totally normal in the US to work six days a week. What changed that? Will says
2: workers. Coming out of World War I and then coming out of World War II, labor movements basically wanted a better deal.
1: So many things about the world have changed since then, and workers are, once again, looking for a better deal. In Overtime, Will and his co-author Kyle Lewis argue that a four-day or a 32-hour work week with, importantly, no loss of pay would not just be good for our mental health, but would lead to greater gender equality and even be better for the environment. Will says that the work week as we know it just isn't working.
2: The normal working week doesn't work in many ways. It's just hidden by the fact that we're forced to do it, basically.
1: If shortening the five-day or 40-hour work week seems too good to be true, like some sort of modern post-pandemic fantasy, you should know it's already happening. Companies like Microsoft and whole countries like Iceland have adopted shorter work weeks, and they've seen some pretty impressive results. Improved well-being among workers, an increase in productivity, and lower electricity bills. So in this episode of Life Kit, rethinking how and why we work.
2: I mean, I think we should all be interested in the future of work. Um, We're all workers of one kind or another. We should not give in to the temptation to to think that the future's just on its way to kind of impose itself on us. But we should be interested in the future of work because we can change it.
0: This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Host a celebratory brunch for less with 365 by Whole Foods Market featuring wallet-happy finds like cold-smoked Atlantic salmon, mini quiches, organic everything bagels, and more. Plus, visit the floral department and jazz up your table with a beautiful bouquet of big, bright, sourced-for-good flowers. When the brunch has to be perfect and delicious, go to your local Whole Foods Market.
1: In the book, you say it's been over 80 years since President Roosevelt's New Deal limited working hours in the U.S. and over 70 since the U.K. established the 40-hour workweek as the standard. But broadly, a lot of things have changed about the world since then, right? So how has the nature of work changed?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a really important point. Um, I mean, we, obviously, we've gone from large manufacturing economies to more service-based economies in the U.S. and U.K. I mean, U.S. still has a lot of manufacturing, of course, but... Um, lot more desk based work. Obviously there's been the IT revolution and now obviously in the pandemic we've accelerated different tendencies, for example, remote work and so on. I mean one thing we should point to is this kind of this bleed between work and life. Even though there were longer hours in the nineteen forties, fifties and sixties, um at work, you you knew you could clock off and go home. Um and I think what's happened particularly since since the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties when we've had uh, the working culture has changed to, to be one where it's it's much more about going above and beyond and working beyond your hours to kind of either either for self improvement in order for better career prospects or for uh, simply because it's demanded of you uh, by your boss. Now in the area of COVID, you're kind of in your living room with your laptop, so it's hard to switch off. That's been a kind of creep which has which has kind of infiltrated our working lives and, and I think you know it's safe to say that it's to the detriment of most people that we, it's hard to switch off it's hard to make distinctions between your free time and your work time I think you didn't have that in a much more manufacturing based kind of factory based system where you could leave the factory go home you know when you clocked in clocked out and that's not even talking about the housework the unpaid work and so on so I think that's one of the major differences there's many differences but I think the major one is the creep of this kind of overtime.
1: Beyond the five day work week, another thing that's accepted as normal is how much work is defined by traditional gender roles and family structures. The history here is pretty familiar, but it's key to understanding how work has been defined and how it could change.
2: What we often call the male breadwinner model has been, you know, a, a kind of division of labour between genders that has basically been around since since the start of industrialism. You know, the, the let's say the, the birth of the working class, the industrial working class, was premised on there being someone at home, a woman to look after the kids, prepare the meals, nurturing and looking after the male worker who comes back exhausted from the industrial grind, basically.
1: When women entered the workforce in the 20th century, that dynamic of which parent in the family was working and who was being cared for didn't exactly flip.
2: When that happens, um, what you get is fine, greater independence, greater um, income earning um, capacity. But you also, unfortunately, you don't really see this massive shift uh, away from uh, that division of labour in the home. So you you get what what is often called by feminists the second shift. So you work in your job and you go home and you do the second shift, which is looking after the family and preparing the meals still.
1: Will says that a shorter working week can address the double labour that working mothers tend to take on.
2: If we're talking about working time reduction, this is particularly relevant to women who both have their paid employment and their, their unpaid work at home. So if, if you're talking about reducing hours in general, this, this will first and foremost benefit those who work the longest hours in total. At the same time, if you look at the, the kind of most stressful and exhausting Um, And kind of poor jobs with the poorest working conditions in our society. They're often carried out by women. So we're talking about uh, hospitality workers, waitresses or carers, nurses, teachers, for example. Um, And so what we're saying there as well is that these are the most exhausting and stressful and, and, and jobs most prone to burnout. Again, reducing the amount of hours at work speaks to that.
1: Right. It sounds like a uh, shorter working week is a bit of a feminist issue to you, it sounds.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's, that, that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think work is, is a feminist issue as much as anything else.
1: Um, beyond being a feminist issue, you say in the book that the shorter work week is more environmentally sound. Can you get into that a little bit more?
2: Sure. Yeah. So we point to a number of studies that have been carried out um, around the world around the link between working hours and carbon emissions or carbon footprints. One such study by Juliet Shaw um, from the US looked at 27 different OECD countries and show the direct correlation between the length of the working uh, week and people's carbon footprints. Now, that's not just because of the kind of work people are doing, the production, so manufacturing and construction being obviously very carbon intensive, and so on. It's also because of the consumption that goes on around work. So things like um, commuting. If people drive to work, that's a, that's a huge carbon burden. If you're taking ready meals and bottle and, and bottled water, kind of these kind of quick, easy food that come with a work-centered lifestyle, they have like high carbon footprints as well. So I think any discussion of, of the future of environmental sustainability should talk about the way that we work and how long we work for.
1: It sounds like to you that, you know, a shorter working week would be a way to imagine different and more equal ways of working, but I think something that you pose in your book is this larger question of how we get there. How, how do you start to provoke people into thinking about work in these more equitable ways, and what do you propose in terms of getting people to actually put action behind that sentiment?
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting it, putting action behind the sentiment. I think it's important to put ideas on the table. There's organizations that do that, think tanks, uh, campaign groups and so on. But I think putting action behind ideas is is uh, something else entirely and that's why in the book we try to point to a number of actors who are really important in this in this regard. So, you have social campaigns, you have the four-day week campaign in the UK, there's one in the US, there's one in Ireland. Germany, Wales in the UK as well, um, and a few others elsewhere. We're just talking to someone from South Korea, for example, who is, who's who's trying to think about how to get this, this idea in, into the mainstream there. Secondly, you have trade unions. It's been trade unions who've really been leading on the shorter working week over the last 150 years. Trade unions are in workplaces. They listen to people in work. They're fundamental. Social campaigns, trade unions, and then finally we should talk about politicians. So we mentioned in the book a number of politicians are waking up to this issue. One other actor to mention I think shouldn't be ignored are those first adopters, those early movers, those firms and those organisations who are and we've worked with, with many of them who are already running this for their staff they want to be seen as good employers, they want to attract staff, retain staff, give uh, kind of better working conditions. That shouldn't be sniffed at we should, we should encourage and, and, and point to these precedents to show oh, look it is possible, it's happening now, it's not a distant dream for some organisations. So I think in total and this is what we're trying to point to in the book, there's a number of actors which are which are going to really make this a reality if it's going to become one at all.
1: So you consult with companies as they transition to shorter work weeks. What common hurdles do you see as they're trying to do that and what are the common benefits that they reap?
2: Yeah, so challenges, I mean, there's there there are some sectors where it's much easier than others to transition to four-day weeks as it stands. And that's because in many places you don't need to take on new staff to reduce those hours basically. So say you're working 36, 37-hour weeks or 40-hour weeks and they're cutting it down to 32 for... Many organisations, what you lose in labour time, you gain in greater productivity on the job. So that's a lot of desk-based work. So creative um, organisations, or uh, lots of administrative organisations, but not just them, but small manufacturers as well. There's a recognition that actually, for eight hours a day, there is some slack. We're not, we can't concentrate all the time, uh, particularly if you're overworked and and you have burnout. And so reducing the working week has reached dividends in terms of productivity and worker well-being, which means they come to work refreshed, they come to work liking their job a bit more and, and wanting to, to kind of get the work done so that they can have a nice weekend and so on.
1: Of course, not every company can easily shift to a 32-hour work week without making some major changes.
2: It's in other sectors, for example, you know, things like healthcare, social care, teaching it's just not possible to reduce your working week without taking on new staff so that adds extra costs to certain organizations whether it's schools and, and hospitals and so on and that has to be recognized I and mean, we're not we're not pretending that everyone across the uh, economy can can do that and um, for us what's the most important thing is to kind of set a roadmap
1: setting up a roadmap is important for shortening the work week but just because you put one in place doesn't mean burnout will disappear will says it's up to everyone to improve work culture
2: so you have people who in a company might want to work above and beyond. They might want to you know, prove that they're working hard and they, they kind of put in extra hours. But that's detrimental to overall working culture um, in, a, in our view because work, a decent working culture would be the quality of what work works good, everyone's playing, playing their role, and there's decent collaboration within the team. Um, it's not about individually proving that you're, you're a harder worker than others. And so just laying down some firm guidelines ground rules about how what working hours are and what's expected of staff that's what needs to be in place to basically avoid some of this kind of overwork culture which which is often at play
1: so some companies are breaking up the five-day work week by offering things like flex hours to contract or gig workers are these flex hours just as good as a shorter work week for workers
2: so i think we have to be a little bit careful with Flexibility and flexible work. Um, what we have to be careful of is that we've seen, and we touch on this in the book, is we, we've seen the flexibilization of work, but only to the advantage, really, of the employer. So to, there's, what we're talking about in terms of like the gig economy, precarious work and so on, it's often sold to us as a kind of, look, you can choose when you work and so on. But often these roles are incredibly badly paid, like often below um, like a livable wage. And so, uh, workers have to kind of put in many, many hours and it doesn't really feel like freedom. It, there's still flexibility there. You can choose when you clock in, and clock off. But given that we live in, in, in an economy and in a society where you have to have an income to pay the bills and, and pay for your food and so on, it doesn't really feel like freedom that you have to put in 14 hour days just to get by, even though technically you're a flexible worker. So I think we have to unpack what kind of flexibility we really want. Now, I think COVID allowed for much less Uh, Control over how people work given that a lot of people not everyone because a lot of key workers working on the front line but a lot of people have been working in uh yeah but at home basically and so that flexibility has been in general has been as as, uh, all the studies that i've seen has been quite a positive thing for people despite the fact that often we're working longer and it's hard to switch off but the flexibility has been useful so i think emphasizing those good flexibilities where where people get those flexibilities that work for them and those flexibilities that have been used to kind of create exploitative working conditions, that's really important. And I think that's what we need to, the conversation we need to have around flexibility.
1: Okay. So say an employee is trying to advocate for a shorter working week with their employer. How do they, how do they broach this conversation proactively in a way that's actually going to be compelling to their boss? I feel like there are a lot of people out there who worry that if they bring up these issues, no matter how compelling the points may be, it'll look like they're just trying to work less for the same amount of money, which I guess is the whole point, is what you're saying. But I think a lot of people still think of this as a negative thing. Like they could be seen as um, trying to take advantage of the employer Mm -hmm. or trying to get away with being, you know, what people think of as lazy.
2: I think there's always... There's obviously power in collectivity, so I I, don't, I wouldn't advise unless there's a good relationship there. I wouldn't advise someone to to go on their own to their employer. I think they should talk about it with amongst other staff and say, look, you know, here's some of the issues I've been having, or here's what I think it might why it would improve our work. Um, let's go, you know, together. That's obviously going to be much stronger because you there's you're, you you know you're not being singled out, um, and it's obviously a shared issue. It can't be reducible to an individual having complaints. Um, this is why obviously um it's important to, to 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 have a trade union in the workplace because trade unions are built in to have those negotiations with employers so you, so and they've their you know skilled representatives and so on who can who can have these discussions so i'd say route 1 is if you have a trade union in your workplace talk to the rep the rep if you don't have a trade union in a workplace consider it but also talk to other workers in the workplace and think about okay is this an issue for more than one of us so kind of creating a kind of collective demand and having that conversation. I mean, this is aside from convincing an employer. I think we should just recognize that like, the normal working week doesn't work in many ways. It's just hidden by the fact that we're forced to do it, basically. We have to do it to earn a living because that's the nature of um, the labor market these days. Um, But it's not working in terms of being beneficial to a huge, huge amount of people.
1: If we had a four-day work week, uh, how do you think uh, we could fill that extra time?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. It's one it's one we ask in our consultancy and also many people, it's in my day-to-day life, I ask them I ask them this question. Um I think it depends how much time we're talking about. But if you gain if you gained a day, if you if you if you had the Friday off or the Monday off, um I mean this sounds quite banal, but a lot of people a lot of people just get their life admin done. You know, they'd rather get a lot of life admin done so the weekend's entirely clear to do all the fun stuff they want to do. Um, which I think is fair enough, even though it's not quite the most exciting answer. Um, I've met people, you know, through my work who do just want to spend more time with their family and like, pick their kids up from school and so on, which I think is quite heartwarming. I think we've all had, you know, whether it's national holiday or bank holiday, where we've just having two nights where uh, two, you know, two nights and you're still only on Saturday on a, like, a, like a holiday somewhere or kind of, you know, just with friends. It's, it does make a huge difference. And so I think... I think it's just, it's a bit, it'll be a bit of a game changer.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Will. I appreciate you spelling out all the things that you you talk uh, about in your book and uh, sharing more about, you know, what your research means, you know, in, in application to real life. I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Ruthie. That was a good, good chat.
1: For more LifeKit, check out our other episodes. I hosted one on how to be an active bystander. And there's another one on how to rethink laziness. You can find those, plus tons of other episodes, at npr.org slash lifekit. And if you love LifeKit and want more, subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash lifekitnewsletter. This episode of LifeKit was produced by Claire Marie Schneider. Megan Kane is the managing producer. Beth Donovan is the senior editor. Our production team also includes Audrey Wynn, Andy Tagle, and Janet Ujung Lee. Special thanks to Kyle Lewis. Our digital editors are Beck Harlan and Wyn Davis. I'm Ruth Tam. Thanks for listening.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more.
1: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.